Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We've been going through this portion of Luke, and we're at a part now where Jesus has, we went through the birth story over Advent, he launched his public ministry in um, just a really compelling way, and then just started right in to some amazingly radical teachings that would have kind of been blowing the minds of the people listening. But his his teachings and his presence, they're gaining momentum. People are are following after Jesus, and there are great crowds gathered around him. And in this section, We need to stop and see how Jesus has gone past just radical words of teaching into an amazing demonstration of power in the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm seems to be responding to this um, ministry of Jesus. So I was working on studying this passage the course of this week, and I thought, you know, maybe I'll just show you guys this. This isn't like a right or wrong thing, but we've been talking a lot in our community nights about, and in our gatherings about spiritual practices every week, things you can do to try out in different ways to engage with scripture and with prayer. And I thought, well, I'm doing this thing. Maybe I'll just show you. You guys, if this is like, that's the weirdest thing, it's totally fine. This is not a, you don't have to do this. So th- sometimes I I. I meditate on passages like this. And I would encourage you, if you're a tactile person or someone like me who can have like a wandering mind, this is really helpful for me as a visual person. And you can look at this later if you're like, I don't understand what's going on. There's no, it's not about right or wrong. But what you do is like I print, if it's, I handwrite it if it's shorter or if it's longer, I I copy and paste it out of Bible Gateway. And then I get out my markers and I make observations like, like the bookends, what matches and how we went from the description of the man here and how that shifts radically here and the the passing of a name the names that are here and down here anyway all of this is if you're visual you kind of can look at a story and things get highlighted some's by some of this comes just by observation some as I study something I'm like I never knew that about the abyss I didn't know that so it just sort of helps me to engage if you're somebody who's visual like me I encourage you to just try it out that's we don't need to follow this mayhem but if um if you want a new way to try to read scripture and absorb it a little bit I encourage you to give it a try anyway so from my my crazy doodles here one of the things that I want us to know um from the beginning on where we are in this story is that it is bookended by crowds um the parts of the passage that we didn't read right before and after we've got very enthusiastic crowds around Jesus listening to him his popularity is clearly increasing he has a lot of followers he's got a lot of likes on Instagram and Facebook like this is really gaining momentum with a lot of people around him his platform in our words his platform is really growing And we see that both um, on both sides of this passage that we see. And we often do see in the life and ministry of Jesus that when he's around crowds for a while, he'll retreat from the crowds and he'll go to a solitary place to be with God. He'll go to a mountain and pray overnight. He will retreat from the masses to be refreshed in communion with his father. Interesting, this moment of retreat feels altogether different than that. It's a different kind of retreating. This is not a retreat space. He goes to be with one, a singular encounter. And the place that he goes to isn't a lovely retreat center, right? He goes all the way across a lake to hang out in an area that is tombs, and then he goes right back to the crowds again after that. So this is already sort of piquing our interest. It's a singular encounter all the way across the lake. Mark 5 
um, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, has an account of the same um, encounter. And we learn there that this man, I mean, he's in bad shape, you guys. He's been cutting himself. He yells just mayhem night and day. He's broken the shackles that his family and neighbors have tried to put on him to restrain him even from harming himself. He's busted through those. I mean, think about this man. You know how scarred up and damaged his skin must have been? Like, try to see him in your mind's eye, this man who's wandering around the tombs. This is an example of Jesus doing that thing he talked about in the parable of the shepherd who would leave the 99 to go after the one. And that that was a celebrated movement. This is Jesus doing what it is that he taught about. He's serving, he's showing what it looks like to serve the least of these. Jesus is doing in action, in living testimony, the things that he talks about. This guy is isolated, you guys. His community has given up on him altogether. He has no apparent hope. It doesn't look like it. And Jesus makes this really big trip for this one guy. And I want us to start by seeing the beauty of the priorities of Jesus of Nazareth in this moment, that he is looking to leave his influence, leave the platform. This is not a story that gets him momentum. We see that in what Kristen read, right? He doesn't gain popularity here. He literally has just gone for this one moment And then he returns right back to where he was in his crowds and the ministry that he was doing on the other side of the lake. It's a quick trip in some regards. We also want to see, as Luke is telling about this series of um, encounters, I encourage you to read this in the arc of Luke's narrative and the surrounding stories. And here's why. I'm going to tell you what's been going on. On the way to this one encounter, this wasn't just a little quick trip. This was a perilous journey to get to this one man. This scene right before this is the scene that you may know of when the, um, Jesus is resting. He's exhausted, you guys. And he's resting in the boat. He's taking a nap. And the storm picks up in the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples are frightened. They think they're going to die. That's the kind of storm we're talking about. They are fearing for their lives. Uh, Luke 8, 24, we'll start there. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and he rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subdued and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the wind and the water, and they obey him. So in our ark, we see it, and we come straight from that to this encounter. Because this is a huge crescendo. Do you see the spiritual crescendo of this? In order to understand it, we need to think with our ancient minds for a moment, ancient mindset. The, the passage about the storm in, history, in historical context would have said uh, something a little bit different to them because they didn't have this notion of nature as an orderly system that meteorologists could study for us. That wasn't how they viewed the natural realm. It was... Um, it was intense and, and outside of their understanding why these things happened in the atmosphere. But here's what we do know. The sea, water as a whole in Old Testament uh, literature and other ancient literature, the sea represented chaos. It was like a fearful kind of place. And we see this in images of the parting of the water in creation, the flood, the monsters of the deep that are described. Like the sea was a chaotic, unknown kind of danger zone right? And here's another thing to remember. To have power over water, where do we hear that? 
Most notably in the Old Testament scripture, it's in when God parts the water to save the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt through his prophet Moses. The waters parted. Whoa, Yahweh has power over the chaos of the sea. And here, Jesus just had the power to make the, the water go from chaos of a storm to still. The water goes still. And we better believe that the disciples in that boat would know about Yahweh parting the waters in that historic Exodus moment. So it's like the greatest expression ever of Yahweh's power. And we've just seen this happen on the boat. So in this moment, we've just gotten arced up in this uh, crescendo because he just demonstrated power over nature. And then it goes bam, bam, bam into these three miraculous healings. So the first one is this one that we're about to study, the demon-possessed man. And then he goes back to the other side of the boat. The crowd's waiting. Jarius grabs him. My daughter's sick. The woman interrupts. I've had an issue of hemorrhaging for 12 or 13 years. He heals the woman with this power of this disease that's cast her out of community. He heals Jarius' daughter because she's already passed away, raising her from the dead. You guys see this, like, power, power, power. All in, a row, all in a row. And what we see if we step back is, wait, we've got power over nature, over the spiritual realm, over diseases, and over death. All in a row. It's all happening. So jointly, the three narratives announce something really big and powerful is happening, and yet, it's not all that long until we see this Lord, this powerful person, going to the cross, allowing himself to be uh, sent into uh, accusations and beatings and even the cross. And we see this and we're like, wait, what is going on? So we need to go into that narrative that we will be in soon in Lent about this uh, trip to the cross, remembering we know Jesus is a powerful, powerful person. And we have signs that he's even divine. So that makes the question mark of the cross even bigger for us. Uh, but that's a little bit off there. But I want to make sure we see all these things in an arc. So we see in this power also, this, this demonstration of lordship, we see incredible compassion. Back to that fact that he made this trip for the one. This is lordship and compassion sandwiched together. So there's the big arc. Um, now we're going to get more deep into this exact piece. And Dave Van Winkle, one of our uptown pastors, points out that whenever we see a miracle of Jesus, it's smart for us to look that it's, uh, these miracles are both redemptive and revelatory, meaning... There's an act of restoration or redemption of the individual involved in that miracle. And, and watch for layers. Watch for more layers than you notice at first of how deep that restoration, that redemption ends up being. Usually um, physical, back to community, spiritual, emotional. There's just all these layers of redemptive quality in the miracles. But also there's something of, of revelation. We can't deny that there's something going on. This could be God with us, Emmanuel. There's something that big going on. So that reveals nature, uh, aspects of his divine nature. So specifically in this encounter, one of the first things we note when we look is that geographically, he's removed himself from his platform, largely of Jews who are waiting for a Messiah. They know the plot line of what they're waiting for, right? He's crossed from that region and he's gone into what historically would have been known as a Gentile region, non-Jewish people. That in and of itself is really interesting because this, this is this not a lot of times. Gentiles go to Jesus, but Jesus doesn't intentionally go into Gentile encounters um, often at all. I think one, I haven't rechecked this, but I think one commentator was like, this is the last time that Jesus is like, I'm going 
to where the Gentiles are. And not only do we know this historically, but we know it for sure because they're, they're raising pigs. And, and uh, pigs were an unclean animal for the Jews. They did not have pigs. So this is really emphasized. We are now in Gentile territory. And he docks the boat, or the disciples do, and they go into this area that's, that's tombs in a hillside. So tombs would have been carved out of a hillside. And you may also recall, not only are pigs unclean, but, but, but um, there was ritualistic uncleanliness that had to do with things like tombs and death, right? This was an unclean area. And Luke seems to emphasize this. The story shows us time and time again. We've got pigs, we've got tombs, and we've got an unclean spirit all in a row. This is the area we're supposed to feel that, that, um, that him entering boldly into what would have been in his culture considered very unclean that does not deter Jesus at all. So we watch in this story, we look at the, remembering the three, uh, the redemption and the revelation that we're waiting for. We're going to look at how three different parties respond to this encounter with Jesus. We're going to look at how the demons respond We're going to look at how the healed man responds, whose name we do not know. And we're going to look at how the village people respond all to this same moment. I'm going to start with the demons. And I want to say this. It's important that we can observe this with a cultural understanding that um, this era, this time, this fully understood and accepted the concept of the supernatural and the divine. The, The cultural context was expectant of supernatural, of a divine intervention in their everyday lives, that that's how things happened. And I think that culturally we can have a little bit of a miss here. I think that we can sort of struggle to accept, uh, to, to wrap our brain around the fact that there is a supernatural realm constantly at work in our world. So let's just remind ourselves and ground ourselves for those of us who um, call ourselves Christian. Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. As Christians, as people who believe and profess God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we believe that there is a supernatural realm at work in our world here. We acknowledge that and affirm that the Holy Spirit is active and engaged in this world in and through followers of Jesus, actively. We're participants in the spiritual realm. We have to be awake and alert to that and not just uh, deter this and sort of say, oh, that spiritual realm talk is all, you know, boogeyman stuff. We do indeed have different knowledge than this culture did about things like medicine and weather patterns in science. We have some more information, but we cannot deny that there is an evil force in this world that is still actively at work, even if we have different language around it. When we look at some of the anti-shalom, anti-God's intended peace stuff that's happening in our world, I thought of that this week. I don't want to get far off of track into this, um, but I, just, I was thinking about it this week. How can I not know that there is a force of darkness against God's intended design when I have had conversations this week alone that include two tragic diagnoses of cancer, uh, awful loss of infertility, 
the, the memory of anniversary of the loss uh, completely unexpected through COVID. All in this week alone, like, can you guys feel the weight when you hear what's going on? Let alone in individuals in places like that. Like how you can feel dark forces at work against God's thriving when we look at human trafficking or uh, systemic racism or any of these things. Uh, uh, just mass genocide. There's so much stuff. We can't deny that there is dark in this world. And I have quoted this before. This is not a biblical source, but Kaiser Soze in The Usual Suspects said one of the truest lines, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he didn't exist. And if we walk around as Christ followers acting like there's no spiritual realm because we're afraid that it's going to make people think that we believe in some weird-looking guy with red that's not what's going on. There's forces of evil that are in this world and we want to be sober-minded and alert to those. And so we walk into this passage knowing there is a spiritual realm and that Jesus has power in that realm through the Holy Spirit and we do too as Christians. One living in us is greater than the one in the world. First John 4.4. 4. So I just needed to remind us that this is... There's a spiritual realm at work, you guys, and there still is today. So we're going to look at how Jesus um, in, encounters this moment and how these demons, how this spiritual realm responds to Jesus. Right away, there's an acknowledgement by the spiritual realm that this is the Son of God, right off the bat. Things that we can't understand as the followers are listening to Jesus and trying to decide what's going on. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What's going on? These questions, not in the spiritual realm. There's something so beyond what we can understand, and we have to accept that, that they see Jesus and they say right off the bat, like their response is, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? They know. They just declared who Jesus was. The spiritual realm is freaking out. Because Jesus just showed up on the scene. And look at this. There's something that we need to remember. Um, that there's a, there's a power in um, the spiritual realm that is associated with a name, which is interesting. So Jesus, they declare Jesus' name. They know who Jesus is and his role. Jesus asks for their name. Interesting that this has been exercised. Like in exorcisms, it's thought if you can name, get the name, and that has power in the spiritual realm to cast out in the name of Jesus a, a named force that is against Jesus. So anyway, the, we also know that there's power in the name of Jesus. And you've, you've heard that phrase. I just want to just quickly explain. There's not like magic in the precise letters that make up the name Jesus. What that means is there's power in the declaration of Jesus being Lord. In the declaration of who Jesus is, what we get is the power of the Holy Spirit to intercede in the spiritual realm. So, but names matter here, and we'll get back to that, but like, they, they name Jesus correctly. Jesus asks for their name, and they, they give it. We're legion, because we are many. So there's something in that name. And the legion beg him, don't throw us into the abyss. Now, there's more divine revelation tucked into this moment because we know from uh, the, the vision, that, that end times vision that was meant to portray some of the intensity of Jesus' return that was given to John that became our book of Revelation. We know that the spiritual realm knows that a day is coming when God will return and the judgment for the demons will be that they will be cast into the abyss, capital A. This is a place that they know is where their final judgment will lead them. What they're saying is, you're God, and you're going to judge us, and we're going to go. We know the plot line. Don't send us. I just thought it was like 
don't plunge us into the sea, because that's exactly what happens. And actually, the commentators, this is the first time I had known, seen this, were like, no, that's the irony. They're begging to go into the pigs and go into the chaos of the sea and drown rather than have their final judgment come now because this is the Christ who they are facing and they know it. So think about this. Jesus says, okay, you can go and just like go into the sea and that's what happens. Guys, this is not just one herd of pigs. This is a big herd. This is like the community's pigs. A huge economic loss just all cast into the sea and gone in this moment. So we have to kind of feel that too. So we know the demon's response. Don't give us our eternal judgment. Let us go drown instead. That would be way better. And they do. That's how the, Jesus, uh, the demons respond. What about this healed man? I want us to look and just sit and remember what we were saying. He's been cutting himself and tearing the shackles, like how mangled his body is. And look at the completeness of his restoration through the healing of Jesus by casting out these demons. The demons are gone. We see that he was full of many demons. This, what this language is doing is, is emphasizing the completeness, right? Luke could have just said, and he was all better then. But no, like feel the weight of each statement. He had many demons. The demons are now gone from him. This man wears no clothes. He's clothed now. He lives in the tombs. He hasn't lived in home for a long time. Jesus says, return to your home. The man would fall down in front of Jesus and shout. No, he's just sitting peacefully at the feet of Jesus. Think about that posture of a learner, of, of the relational peace here. And he's, he was seized by demons. His body was out of control. And he's sitting calmly in front of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. There's such a completeness of this picture of restoration. And think about that intimate posture. Look how calm and non-rushed Jesus is. I love that. He's come for this moment. He's just sitting because the man asking him questions, maybe I'm sure they're looking at each other, like feel the peace of eye contact, the peacefulness of just being able to look at this person who just saved you when he's been isolated on his own, living among the tombs, in havoc in his own mind. This peaceful, intimate scene, I love it. We try to do this, um, this imaginative reading and I love this little moment and how does the man respond? He asks Jesus, can I go with you? I want to keep being where you are. It's sort of the posture. Can I come? Jesus says, no. I want you to go home. Go back to your home. That's the restoration that includes community. But I think that would have been really hard, you guys. This guy had been a menace to the community. He was not very popular, I don't imagine. I don't know what the community is going to think. Because of him, in a way, they just lost a huge economic asset into the sea. That would have been a hard ask to go. And what about this man? You guys, the community gave up on him. His family, like, cast him out and tried to bind him up. And they did all these things to him, cast him away, and, like, he needs to go back there. But that's the wholeness of the restoration. Sometimes that stuff is hard, but for Jesus to do the completeness of the healing, that includes being reconciled back to his community and to his family. How does Jesus equip him for that? How is he going to be able to do it? Jesus says, just go back. Tell them how much God has done for you. And here's an interesting moment when we get back to that holy importance of a name and another little, little moment of divine declaration 
Jesus says, go and tell them what God has done for you. And scripture says that the man went back, told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. What we see Jesus doing, we see God doing. There's power in that name. Jesus didn't say, go tell them what I did. He said, tell them what God did. God brought this healing. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, in the spiritual realm, God has brought healing. Tell them, and he's like, I met Jesus. Jesus did this thing. There's divine revelation in that moment, and the names do matter. It's also beauty in this uh, as Christians. Sometimes when we think about telling people about our faith, it can feel like I need to be able to unpack the whole, you know, gospel message or something. He says, Jesus just says, go tell your story. Tell what God did for you. That's it. Go tell. And we know, we get the sense that reconciliation can come back. The healing was here. But like, what if the Great Commission could be that beautiful line? Go tell, go tell people what, what God did, has done for you in your life. Make it personal. I don't think it's going to be easy for this guy, though, because look at how the community responds in this moment. They're not pleased. This healing is not bringing them great joy and celebration. They're actually fearful. We read that they are afraid. Overcome with fear, Scripture says. They ask Jesus to leave. Why do you think? Do you think it's because that power was so intense and to have that power on display was scary? Maybe. Do you think it's because they're super mad about their pigs? Maybe. If I were them, I'd say both. I'd probably be feeling both. This is like a little intense. Would you go? This feels a little chaotic to me. I can sort of imagine both of those things being true. The people who had been afraid of the demoniac are now afraid of Jesus who had the power to drive out that scary force that had made that man so awful to live with, right? I came across in Justo Gonzalez's uh, commentary, he quotes a gentleman, Fred Craddock. I, I am not familiar with that name, but I like and trust Justo's work a lot. But this was really, this struck me this week. The people knew the locus, the location of the evil. They knew where the man lived. They devoted considerable time and expense trying to guard and to control him. They had the situation, what felt pretty much under control from their perspective. They had control over it. The community thus learns to live with demonic forces, isolating and kind of practically controlling them. So even when it's for good, power that can neither be calculated nor managed is frightening. That really struck me this week. And I'll tell you why. Because if it feels like we've got it compartmentalized or under control-ish, enough-ish, what evil do we allow to exist in our midst? What are we saying in our distant talk from the spiritual realm, culturally, when we distance ourselves? What are we accepting, accepting and even participating with that's actually able to be defeated or cast out here by the power of the Holy Spirit? What are we accepting? Because we want to keep distance from talking about a spiritual realm. What can we say as long as we can keep that evil force in a compartment somewhere where I can control it or at least feel like it's compartmentalized a little bit, we'll just let that be rather than actually dive into it and do something about it. Romans 8.11 says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Church, do we believe that? That's a huge deal. That's a really, really big deal to consider. 
I think about this um, in two ways, and we're going to get into application here just for a second. I was thinking about this. I actually love that we're talking about this the week after J29 came to visit us with Brian Dye, because um, when Brian was talking about this, he was talking about what does it mean as a Christian to take on a systemic evil that we see in our cities, in our communities. And when he's talking about bringing restoration, bringing a home to somebody uh, who, who needs a home, and also, would you hear the rest of what he said? Like, these people are God-loving people who hold Bible studies and prayer groups. That's, that's a piece that's beyond the restoration of the individual. That's taking the spiritual realm head-on and saying, we have something we can do to bring the Holy Spirit into a place that's marked otherwise by violence and extreme poverty and other problems like what can we do and so from like a systemic way when I was thinking like how do you even start to approach this like Brian Dye gave us one little glimpse he gave us one idea on how you even engage in the spiritual realm in a practical way but I know there's also a lot of really personal applications that matter in this conversation this week's spiritual practice is all about uh, engaging with naming and seeing and praying into the spiritual realm and the forces that, and the, the, the things, whatever we want to call them, that, that are kind of like the thumb holding us down from the shalom and the flourishing that we know is God's intended design. I'm going to just take a couple little pieces from this. This is all on our, our website. Um, so I, and consider what this might look like today. This, this act of seeing and naming. We can loosen up on our labels a bit, not to spend so much time fixating on what's demonic or not. Like The labels, I think, can get in the way. But instead, focus on the issues that plague us. Naming and seeing our obsessions, fears, illnesses, or common problems for what they are, rather than ignoring them, is a liberating practice that Jesus used to free this man from his torment in Luke 8. The naming of a demon, of whatever you want to call that oppressive force, let's call it that, so that we don't get caught up in the language. The naming and acknowledging of, the, of, of the, that oppressive force is a weapon that's at our disposal in the spiritual realm. And so the, the practice written out by Sam and Brian, our Lincoln Square pastor, um, that's on the website is something to give you some prompts to actually do this. But I felt, felt like there might be a couple of observations that I would just give you from my own life on when I've had to engage with this, right? So one, one moment that I thought of was um, there was this time I was really struggling with... I, 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 prone to insecurities, it's, it's fine. But I was, it had gotten to the point where my, my doubt was, was making it so I couldn't like even engage in the thing that I knew I was supposed to be doing. I was feeling debilitated. I don't know, whatever your thing is. Have you ever gotten it to the point where you're like, this is actually like impeding my life. I'm getting to that point. And I remember sitting in my living room and being like, where's this coming from? Is this spiritual warfare or is this Melissa's pride at wanting to be so perfect that I think I'm actually a big deal and I need a bowl of humble soup? Like it could be that sometimes my insecurities because I'm like, well, I have to be, you know, anyway, I won't go down that path. I was sitting there like, what's the source? What's the source? And I felt God just prompt me through the spirit to be like, can we get past the source? Can we get to the healing? There was freedom in that. And it's okay. Like, I needed to name the thing and not worry so much about the wording of where it was coming from. Could confess the peace that was me and my pride. Pray for help for the peace that was spiritual oppression. Whatever the source, let's get to the healing. 
And I think that's what this week's practice is really about, but we need to be able to name it first. Another one for me, for me can be um, anxiety. I'll give you this little tidbit. In my own experience, the enemy with the whispers, uh, whatever that oppressive feeling is, is super vague. You should be scared. You should be mad. You should be whatever. Um, anxious is the one I had, like you should. And if you sit there and you're like, okay, but why? Holy Spirit, bring it in prayer. Invite the Holy Spirit in. That's step three. And invite the Spirit in. Say, Holy Spirit, why am I anxious right now? Why is my throat tightening up? And I have found that literally there have been moments where I'm like, no, just I should just be anxious. I don't actually think that's true. And I can pray and I can breathe and it can go. Other times it's like, because you've got to go and face that person and have that hard conversation. I'm like, oh, I don't want to. And then we can, you know, like the Holy Spirit and convicting work is really specific because the goal of God is flourishing. The goal of the enemy is the opposite of flourishing. And so if you're naming and seeing that oppressive thing that is bringing your life down and there's vagueness around it, invite in the Holy Spirit and say, will you help me? Protect me, bring healing. Come into community. Let's pray over one another. There's healing. And if there's specificity, then praise God and invite God in for healing in that place where that that doubt or that angst or whatever, those are just my, you know, I'm bringing my baggage. Welcome. You didn't know you were going to have some baggage thrown on you today. But that's, you know, those are my things. What are yours? Like some of it is just naming it because here's the deal that that quote prompts in me. Sometimes if we compartmentalize it enough then we normalize it in our lives, we think it is a natural part of what life feels like to be human. And I would say that I want to hold along with the Holy Spirit and Christ Jesus a Genesis 1 definition of thriving. And I believe that God would help to bring that through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I believe that there is healing from the things that would hold us down. And there's power in naming them, seeing them, and inviting God to bring the healing and restoration that only God can bring. Thank God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we get to see that in demonstration. And when you're feeling that, like, just that weight, like just put yourself at the feet of Jesus, like this man who's scarred up, mangled, and he's sitting there peacefully just looking at that loving, compassionate gaze of Christ. Look at that compassionate gaze in your mind's eye of Christ. There's healing to come in the spiritual realm. One of the things that I want to say as as we transition to prayer is that um, for some of you, Maybe you're in a place where you're just like, I just wanted to check out church, and that was like a whole lot. And for that, I'm like, kind of sorry, not sorry, because the fact is, is that I don't mean to overwhelm anyone, but there's a beautiful truth in the love of God over you. And maybe this was a moment where you just needed to hear that, and, and we'd love to have more conversations about that. Um, for some of you, it might be like this stuff all seems like a bit scary and boogeyman-ish, if we're being honest. And I don't want to have this, this thing holding me down, but this is a scary conversation. Please, like, reach out. We'd love to talk. There are so many wise people who have good tips and tricks and tools and prayer. Like, prayer is huge, but, like, nobody, nobody, nobody needs to feel like any spiritual battle is one that needs to be confronted alone, ever. There's no isolation uh, in this. This community aspect is so important. And then thirdly, I would just say, for those of you who, who call Jesus Lord, just a reminder, the one who is living in us is greater than the one who's in this world. I mean, what does it look like if we actually remember that and say, like, I can 
be a participant in little pockets of kingdom inbreaking in my friend's life, in my own life, in that neighborhood, in any different way. Like, but but we have to we have to be open-eyed, open-hearted to see those things and not just compartmentalize them and say that must be normal because that's just the way it is. Let's join God with a greater vision for what flourishing can be. God, we love you. We thank you for the love you first gave us. We are blown away, Jesus, by the compassion and power that coexist in these stories and um, just sometimes feel overwhelmed to respond in a way that um, can bring forth true healing. And so I'm just reminded, God, that that's because it's you who does that part. Jesus, bring wholeness and healing, bring restoration to the broken places through the power of your Holy Spirit. It is in your name, Jesus, that we sing and pray and trust and worship and glorify your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.